it well to center field. Deion Sanders going back to the wall, and it is gone. Bo Jackson over. Episode 10 of the Facebook All Sports. That is the FBAS podcast. I'm your host, Wayne G, joined as always by Jesse B and Dan Sully Sullivan. What's going on, guys? Hello, hello. I'm so excited to be back. Hey, how we doing, folks? Always nice to be here. You're probably either listening to us because you downloaded the episode from somewhere, you're streaming it from somewhere, or maybe you're listening to us live on Wednesday nights at 9 on the RTF Sports Network, which, by the way, we are nominated for Show of the Month, so please. Log into the RTF Sports Network. That's rtfsportsnetwork.com. Top of the page is a banner. Click that. Click Facebook All Sports. You just voted for the best show on the station. Definitely, guys. You know, we're rocking it so far, but we need every vote. We certainly love what's going on with the support so far. So thank you to everybody. And guys, episode 10, that's a milestone for us. I don't want to seem cheesy, but getting episode 10 is very exciting. Yeah, thank you, folks. We appreciate it. Even being nominated for Show of the Month is obviously amazing. Please get up on there, vote for us. We need your vote. You know, you're going to look and you're going to see we're in a pretty big lead right now, but you know, that could all change in a night. So please just show us some support. We would be forever thankful, guys. If you guys listened to the last episode, you are true fans because it was a two and a half hour episode, two parts, basically two episodes in one. We definitely appreciate you guys giving it a listen. This one's going to be a lot shorter. We're just recapping episodes five and six of The Last Dance on this episode. And I guess we'll kick things off with episode five. Just like we did the last episode, I'm thinking we're probably just going to run in order of the show. So as we go down the list, this basically is the show hitting play and we're running down our thoughts on various things that went on there. Right off the bat, first thing, episode five starts off. It says, in loving memory of Kobe Bryant. And immediately I'm like, choked up. I was going to say, Wayne, you are the resident Laker fan. I wanted to know if you teared up at this part, because for sure I did watching this for the first time. I've seen it twice so far, and both times I get emotional. Kobe is a guy that I really revered, and to see him speak for the first time and see him in highlights back then, it, it choked me up. But again, Wayne, you are the resident Laker fan and one of the biggest Laker fans I know. How did it make you feel? Like I said, I was reminded of everything that he's not here anymore. I'm not just a Lakers fan. I'm a Kobe fan through and through. When he was drafted by the Charlotte Hornets, I was getting ready to order a Charlotte Hornets, you know, Kobe Bryant jersey, uh, the Lower Marion jersey. I'm a huge Kobe Bryant fan ever since he came into the league, even before he was on the Lakers. The fact that he went to the Lakers just makes it that much more special. But my entire life, I've tried to like model my game after him, model my jump shot after his everything and i've just been so envious of him and he's been such a an impact in my life i have him on my christmas tree he's the top of the christmas tree every year and so when i got the news it was just devastating i think just seeing it watching that last episode it really i kind of started to feel like reminded that he's not here anymore yeah you just said essentially how i felt it's just kind of reminded you like oh fuck kobe Bryant really is gone we're never gonna see that smile again we're never going to see that turnaround fade away. Like, I know we weren't anyway because he wasn't playing, but still, you guys know what I mean. It just, it, it really did just put it kind of back into the limelight and back into the forefront that, man, Kobe Bryant really is done. But it was a great tribute. You know, it was a needed one, I think. And it really just kind of brought a whole aura to the episode that I think kind of played through the first little bit that I thought was a really good tone to set. 
Yeah, it was definitely an homage or a tribute to Kobe Bryant to start the episode before they start getting into all the Bulls stuff. And, you know, the first thing, obviously, they show the uh, in the hallway at the All-Star game, Mike and Kobe walk by each other, do a little fist bump or whatever it is. And you hear the announcer say that this is Michael Jordan's last All-Star game and Kobe Bryant's first, the youngest player ever to start an All-Star game at 19 years and five months. So the two things, one, I didn't research this, so this is my bad, but I figure LeBron James must have broken that because I think he started as a rookie. He was like 18 years old. And then the second thing was the funny thing about Kobe starting the all-star game he wasn't even a starter on the lakers that's insane that he had that type of popularity but i mean it shows that he had i mean you're a guy from the northern new england area and here you are rooting for a guy like kobe bryant coming into the league out of high school so you know he had huge popularity coming into the league his tenacity so i mean it certainly doesn't shock me that he had that type of presence and it's nice to see that fans weren't putting people in there for silly reasons they were putting guys in there that you know they knew were going to really try So, I just went and looked it up while we're here, figured, hey, you know what, as well, give it a shot. And as of February 23rd of 2020, Kobe Bryant is the youngest all-star starter in history at 19 years, 170 days old. Another fun fact that I didn't know, he's the youngest slam dunk contest champion ever at 18 years, 169 days. And I didn't know that. So, that's pretty cool. But yeah, definitely. I mean, that moment of him walking through the hallway and then MJC's, I mean, it was just a really cool, like you said, kind of homage to Kobe at the beginning. I thought it was pretty neat to see that Larry Bird was actually the head coach of the Eastern Conference. So seeing him and Michael, as well as a tiny bit of magic in that all-star game scenario, that was just pretty neat to see their involvement, even though only one of them is still playing. Yeah, I thought it was cool to see you know Michael interacting with him as the coach, even though he played against him. And then obviously Magic coming in. I think him and Magic are buddies anyways. But seeing Magic come in, they had Magic, Michael, and Bird all there in the locker room was kind of cool because we get to see all three of them again later in the episode, but it was cool to see them all at the start of the episode as well. Yeah, definitely. I mentioned my girlfriend's kind of watching these with me now and she's kind of getting into them. And so she asked me, she goes, who's the goofy looking white dude? And, you know, I had to explain to her who Larry Bird was, who the hick from French Lick was. And she's like, man, that guy's good at basketball. And I'm like, you have no idea. So, I mean, you know, perceptions can be deceptive with Larry Bird, that's for sure. But yeah, it was definitely really cool. And I always wondered, you know, how that would feel is to have a guy for a peer for so long. And then all of a sudden he's kind of in a position of power over you. Now, I know he's an all-star coach and it's not really like him telling you what to do but I always wondered how that dynamic would work if it actually played out where Larry Bird would have been MJ's real coach that would have been crazy yeah I think it would have been nuts I think MJ would have respected him because MJ I think played for Phil Jackson and Phil Jackson was a player and I know that they weren't contemporaries they didn't play with each other but I think the biggest thing like that is probably Jason Kidd if you think about him taking over as a head coach like the very year after he retired that must have been crazy nuts Now, in the locker room, you see Michael Jordan's talking to Tim Hardaway, and I thought it was interesting, again, continuing with the whole Kobe homage, was Michael says to Tim Hardaway, that little Laker boy is going to take everybody one-on-one. He doesn't let the game come to him. He just goes and gets it. And I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, again, just touching on his tenacity and how the comparisons to Jordan aren't just in the playing style, but the mental just drive, the fact that they want to eat your heart out, the fact that they do want to take you one-on-one, they want to embarrass you. So it was nice to kind of see Jordan mention that on camera. You know, these honest bits that we're getting to see in the locker rooms and in practices are just so special. Yeah, the behind the scenes things. I talked about this at the very beginning when we were leading up to how excited we were to see and what we were excited to see. These things right there, like that comment right there, especially is one of the things I want to see, like the behind the scenes stuff where that little Laker boy going to take everybody one on one. They just know how confident Kobe was in his game and what he was going to do and how he was going to try to take over the game. And that's just so cool to see. 
Yeah, and just to continue on that, I mean, we hear Bob Costas, a young Bob Costas, actually mentioned that many fans and and, uh, media folks have actually dubbed Kobe Bryant as the next Michael Jordan. So, you know, we've heard that comparison, but to hear it then and in that time at the All-Star Game when he, again, he's 19 years old. Yeah, and it's kind of a, reminds me of a personal story where I was at the lunch table my second senior year. I did a Ben Affleck super senior year, like in Days and Confused. (laughs) Uh, My second senior year, I'm sitting at the lunch table and I was sitting there with this kid, Eric, and I mentioned to him the Bulls were playing the Lakers and I said you know Kobe Bryant is going to be the next Michael Jordan and he said no no he's not I said no I'm telling you right now that guy's the next great player in the NBA and he was like all right we'll see so we made a bet and that was the night that I think Jordan went for 38 and Kobe had 33 and he comes into the lunchroom the next day and he's shaking his head he goes dude that kid's the next Michael Jordan Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's had, oh, who's the next great player? I think we all agree, you know, how, how high we have LeBron and how much respect for how we have for him now and how great he is. I don't think we've ever seen anybody like Michael as close as we did with Kobe. Like, the play style, the tenacity, the one-on-one kind of just absolute embarrassment he would put on people, his defensive ability on the other end of the floor. You know what I mean? Those kind of things. Kobe's game resembled Michael so much, and it was so amazing to see. You know, and they had a great relationship, him and Mike. So there was a quote in the show where Kobe says, you're great, you're all this. And he goes, well, I wouldn't be anything without Michael. You know, Michael's the reason I am so great. He taught me all those things. And I thought, that was such a huge comment like such a respectful thing to say and i just love seeing that yeah i think we all can agree that that's the closest we've seen someone come to michael's game and tenacity but there are certainly a lot that they threw at the wall hoping to stick wayne who comes to mind when you hear someone called the next michael and, and they didn't stick at all oh harold minor that, that's the big one baby jordan he won the slam dunk contest and by the way he could throw down monster slams and he was like six foot two six foot three but not even close to Michael Jordan in terms of how he played. I did notice here, it says Kobe and Michael, they had that big brother, little brother relationship. Michael references that in his eulogy as well. And I remember reading an article, I don't know if they said it in the episode or not, but I remember reading an article after the episode came out that Michael was not the kind of person who let people in. Like Michael kept all the other basketball players at a distance, but there was something about Kobe he couldn't help but let him in. There was just like Kobe just kept pestering him and pestering him and hanging around the locker room and following him around and asking him questions when he was trying to practice and just was annoying him. And it, for something, it just grew on Mike and Mike really opened up and kind of took him under his wing. Now, Kobe, on the other hand, I feel like took a bunch of young players under his wing and was really trying to help a lot of young players, which was the opposite of Jordan. But the fact that Jordan said, all right, kid, you're going to be my project. You got to be selective, man. Yeah, I mean, like we mentioned, if we saw Michael in Kobe, then you have to think Michael saw a little bit of himself in the kid. And you got to think maybe that's why he did it. Uh, Obviously, we have no clue, but you got to think maybe, hey, he sees this kid's kind of got the same tenacity and drive. Why don't I teach him a little of the things that nobody ever taught me? And I had to figure out for myself the hard way. Let's teach him and see what he can learn. Now, they finish up the Kobe homage with the All-Star Game. Mike wins the All-Star Game MVP. I think he has 28 points or 27. That doesn't matter. He wins the All-Star Game MVP. But the thing they didn't mention was that Kobe Bryant's intention going in there, he knew that it was going to be the Michael Jordan show. It was Mike's last All-Star Game. And this is how much of a killer he is, as much as he respected MJ. Kobe Bryant was trying to steal the All-Star Game MVP from Michael Jordan. In fact, I think he had 18 points through three quarters, and they benched him the entire fourth quarter so that he wouldn't win MVP. I wonder if Mike actually hated that. I mean, seeing the respect that he had for Kobe, I wonder if he really hated that in, in retrospect or even at the time. That's a good point. He might have. I mean, he, he had to have known what was happening when they take out Kobe. I don't know. I mean, Kobe would have probably had to score 40, to be honest, with you, to keep MJ from winning that MVP. But that just, again, shows to Kobe's tenacity. You know what I mean? I mean, nobody wanted to win more than that guy, uh, maybe probably other than MJ in the NBA, you know, so... 
And if anything, I don't think I think Michael might have resented them taking him out of the game if that's what you're talking about, because I think that Michael would have enjoyed the competition of trying to win that. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. I won. I was thinking. I, I bet you he hated that that he got benched because he really enjoys that competition. You know, he respects them giving it their all. I think in the episode they show him on the bench saying to the other All Stars, he's like, you know, Kobe's just going to try to score every time. He goes, but I'm going to make him work for it on the defensive end. Yeah, we knew Jordan had a versatility of moves, so I'm not surprised to see that he's he's not willing to embarrass somebody in the post or at the three point line. They come out of the Kobe tribute and they go uh, directly into March 1998. We pick up kind of where the last episode left off. It's Michael's last game in MSG, Madison Square Garden. He refers to it as the Mecca of basketball. And they didn't mention it. They'll probably bring it up in the next episode because I think they're going to touch on his whole baseball thing for uh, an episode or two. But they didn't mention that when he came back from baseball wearing number 45, that was where he really let out because he started off with the Pacers. He had 18 points, something like that. When he got to Madison Square Garden, he dropped 55, and that was his first 50-point game in number 45. Yeah, the ever-famous double nickel game. You know, he had some great feats against that team, some great rivalries and companionships with some of those players. You know, I think we've seen, you know, and it will get touched on again further along in the episode, but his relationship with Ewing, his relationship with Spike Lee, he can love them off the court, but once he gets on the court, you know, he wants to rip your heart out. He wants to dunk right on you. He had the ultimate respect for the place, you know, just because he refers to it as the Mecca of basketball. But having that respect, I think you just want to show out even more and you just want to embarrass the opponent even more and just turn it kind of into your house. You know what I mean? Even though it technically wasn't his home floor, turn it into his house. Yeah, he knew that New York had a respect for basketball, like really no other place in the country. I mean, you think of some of the greatest street ball parks of all time. I mean, the Rucker is easily number one. So Jordan wears the Air Jordan 1s for his last game there, and he mentions that his feet are bloody at halftime, but he's not taking the shoes off because he's having a good game. Either one of you guys ever buy a pair of those Jordan 1s? Because I have a pair. Oh, you do? I do, yeah. I mean, I've got the newer pair. I mean, the... Oh, you know, okay. The... I was going to say, because the ones going now for going for $8,000. <laughs> no, no, no. Not, not, not the originals that, that he was wearing. I've yeah. got the uh, the ones that actually feel comfortable. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, does anybody know what the original 85 breads are going for? The highest bid right now is $8,500 for a pair of those shoes. The original 85 Air Jordan 1s. That's insane, boys. That's how crazy this man is. Yeah, I wouldn't pay that much. Actually, if we're going to talk about shoes, I mean, we're going to get into the whole shoes thing, so I'll hold my favorite Jordan uh, until we get deeper into that. But yeah, I just thought it was funny. He's not taking them off, and I understand that feeling. My second senior year, again, I had basketball tryouts. I bought the uh, Allen Iversons. They were black, and they had gold. It said Iverson down the tongue, and they had like these little bubbles in the bottom of the shoe. And by the end of practice, my feet, I could have stuck them into a fire, and it would have cooled them off. They were so hot. Yeah, I mean, I was the same way. I had a pair of cleats that I wore for probably my entire high school career, and they're just the worst. They're giving me blisters every day, but they're your cleats, you know what I mean? You got to wear them kind of thing, so they just made you play better almost. <laughs> so the episode does that little timeline flashback thing. We get to June 1984, and we get to see David Falk, Michael Jordan's agent, who basically he represents mostly tennis players. He has this company called ProServe, and they represent Jimmy Connors and whoever, Andre Agassi, whoever, all these tennis players, a couple of golfers. And he says, you know, I want to treat marketing Michael Jordan like he's an individual sport athlete and not a team athlete. I want to make Michael Jordan the focus of an advertising campaign. Yeah, I mean, for a guy that I've never heard or read his name, this guy seriously had an impact on how Jordan blew up and became one of the most marketable guys in history. Definitely. I mean, who knew that the decision essentially came down to his mother making him go to the meeting? Like, I had no clue that that's essentially what it boiled down to. Like, it mentions he's done with Nike, doesn't want to do there, and essentially boils down to his mother. That's so crazy to me. I had no clue it was that close to being Converse. 
Well, not really Converse because it goes into where he said that Converse was the official shoe of the NBA. They show the commercial for the Converse weapon and, you know, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, whoever is anybody, Dr. J, they all wear Converse. And I think that Michael said he didn't want to go to Converse because he would not be the face of the sneaker. It was going to be those guys. And so he wanted to go to Adidas. But this guy, you know, David Falk, he had said, listen, Adidas is all a mess right now. They're not, they aren't ready to produce their own shoe line yet for basketball. Like, I understand you want to go there, but Nike, if you want your own shoe is the way to go. And like you said, he didn't want to go and his mom's like you got to give him a shot yeah i mean touching on converse there i mean the reason that they were so popular back in the 70s and early 80s is because of them being supported by all those superstars in the nba i mean you think of dr j and magic and larry and isaiah all of them supported them and just a personal story for me my grandmother up here in new hampshire actually worked for converse and in a factory making soles for the shoes between 70 and 80 oh snap that's pretty dope. <laughs> Any of those stars could have wore shoes that she made. That she was making. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. I'm not going to lie. It's possible if it's the 70s or 80s. I'm thinking that nowadays, like, they probably have, like, a special person, like Andrew Wiggins, like, whoever makes his shoes at Nike, there's a guy that specifically makes the shoes that the players wear, and then everybody else makes the shoes that people buy. Well, not only that, you no, know, she probably made a thousand pair of Converse, you know, and they maybe only sold a hundred thousand all year. You know what I mean? Nowadays, they're selling millions and millions of every shoe. Like, the mere averages don't amount to somebody wearing a shoe you would make. So Mike takes the meeting with Nike per his mom's request. And basically, his agent, again, David Falk, says to Nike, listen, you guys want to venture into basketball. You're a big track company. You do track shoes and all that stuff. But if you want to do basketball, Michael Jordan is the name that you want. And at that time, stars, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, they're getting $100,000 a year, which is nuts now, but hundred grand a year to sponsor their shoes and nike offers michael jordan two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to give him his own shoe and i think all the other players in the league were like holy crap like who's this guy yeah i mean for him to come in and just demand these things and do it to a point where nobody had ever done it i think was really kind of groundbreaking and really kind of cool and you know that's what you need from an agent and a manager is somebody who sees a vision and is so passionate about it that goes with it and it's groundbreaking and the the whole air soul and the air jordan i thought was really cool i had no clue that's why it was air jordan because of the air soul tech so that was a new little nugget for me which you know anytime i can learn new information your boy's a fan of it yeah you would have thought that air jordan just because that was his nickname so that's what they called it but now actually he got his nickname from the shoe and the shoes technology i thought it was the other way around i thought it was you know he's air jordan so that's just what they named the shoes but no it was completely the opposite it's because of the tech from nike and i mean again like i said anytime you learn new information sign me up what do you boys think of that original logo? I mean, because we obviously saw a logo switch from the Air Jordan logo that he's wearing there in that original shirt and on the shoes. And then, you know, we swore over into the Jumpman logo. Yeah, you mean like the 23 with the wings or whatever it was? Yeah, the, the shoe with the wings. Yeah, the 23 with the wings. I picture it, but, you know, it's obviously different than what most of us recognize the Jumpman logo as now. Well, it's a basketball with wings and then above it is a banner that says Jordan, by the way. That's the logo. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Jumpman is so much better, and it's cleaner, and it's more simple, and obviously it's become gigantically iconic, and to the point that Jordan has his own brand, right? The Jordan brand, which is, I won't say a competitor of Nike because it was birthed from Nike, but they are different brands that compete with each other. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I actually love the classic logo. I think it's 
for like a shirt, I think it's much better. But, you know, as the shoe and its separate brand, I mean, the Jumpman logo is arguably the most iconic shoe logo, arguably the most iconic logo on the planet. You put that logo up globally and everybody on the planet knows Jordan. Just like you put the McDonald's Golden Arches, everybody knows McDonald's. You know, it's just so iconic that, I mean, obviously the Jumpman's just going to win out there for me. And without Mama Dolores taking Jordan down there, we never get any of this. I thought it was interesting that they said that you know Nike's goal with the Air Jordan 1 was they wanted to make $3 million by the end of year four. And by the end of year one, they'd made $126 million. How the fuck did they keep up with that demand? I mean, is that when the child labor actually started to kick in? Because you think of the astronomical numbers that they did not project. How did they keep up with that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I had no clue they did that well their first year. I mean, obviously, we know they did well, and it ballooned and into something so gigantic, but I had no clue they blew projections out that much. I mean, I'd love to look back and see if it was the number one selling shoe of the year or whatever. It had to have been to be that big, but I mean, that's insane. I know they didn't mention in the episode, but it was obviously a big deal that the he got fined every time he wore the Air Jordan 1s because they didn't match the team color or something like that, and Nike paid his fine for every game that he was fined because they viewed it as a worthwhile investment. That's commitment, baby. That's an awesome relationship between a sponsor and an athlete that has obviously carried them through decades to the point, like you said, Wayne, he's got his own brand now that he's continuing to flourish. I mean, he probably makes millions a day without having to move just based on his brand. I also wanted to touch on the fact that we we heard MJ say, my game allowed me to make the deals that I did. If I was averaging 10 points a game, I'm not making these deals. I'm not blowing up like I am. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of obvious, to be fair. The biggest stars obviously get the biggest deals and things like that. And, you know, there's a reason his shoe gets it's gigantic. I saw a really cool kind of tweet the other day that somebody mentioned, when somebody starts getting killed over LeBron's, I'll think LeBron's the greatest of all time. And I mean, like you think about it, and people have really been killed over Jordans, over a shoe, and that's how iconic this man is. We'll just never see anything like it again. Not about you guys, my favorite shoe is the Jordan 11, the white with the patent black leather around the toe. Oh no, the 12s, baby. Oh, give me the 4s, give me the Jordan 4s. Nah, the, the, the 12s, the Carolina blue, the white with the Carolina blue all around the trim, the university blue OG retros. Oh, those are hands down the greatest shoe he's ever made. Those are so fire. And again, look, we all have three different shoes that we think are iconic and the best shoe. And like, you know what I mean? And every one of them is kind of right. You know, it's just that's how great this man and his shoe designs are and like his team are and shit. Yeah, the guy's got over, he's got like over 30 pairs now. Yeah, with the colorways too, it's insane. Well, I mean, we heard Nas actually touch on it. He said that People before Jordan were just wearing basketball shoes to ball. After Jordan, you're wearing them to get fits off. Yeah, for sure. So they flash to 1991. They talk about the difficulty of repeating as a champion. And I noticed that they showed the Jordan shot where he closed his eyes at the foul line. And that was a bet, or not really a bet, but kind of a man's wager, I guess, with Dikembe Mutombo, who he had told Dikembe Mutombo he could make these foul shots with his eyes closed. And Mutombo said, prove it. And so he did well, you say there was just a gentleman's bet. He says, I'll bet you 100000 Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, they've got like a whole like where they caption, you know, somebody reads their lips. And he says, bet you 100000 that I'll make it. And then, you know, the, he obviously doesn't shake his hand. Obviously not a real bet, but he throws out a dollar amount. And I mentioned that to my lady who's watching that. And that whole, pro- like actually what it was, why he closed his eyes. And I told her, I was like, that actually happened in a real game. Like this wasn't a messing around thing. And that's how great this man was. 
They fast forward to the 1992 finals. It's the Bulls and the Blazers. So we just had the Bulls and the Lakers with Michael versus Magic. And now we get Michael versus Drexler. And MJ is pissed something fierce that people are even mentioning Clyde Drexler in the same breath as him. Yeah, it's certainly not hard for Jordan to come up with a chip to put on his shoulder, a reason to become pissed off and essentially play harder. We see him do this throughout these episodes where he ends up really disliking someone or something, and it makes him play harder and really wants to show that he's the best. So we saw this with Clyde and MJ for sure. Yeah, I mean, Clyde looked 100. I know he was only a year older than MJ at the time, but I mean, and maybe this is just a testament to MJ's overall athletic ability because you've touched on how athletic Clyde was, Wayne, and how he was probably the only one in the league that kind of mimicked MJ's athleticism. At MJ at 29 and Clyde at 30, they did not look anywhere near the same player. MJ dogged him and made it pretty embarrassing if you ask me when I looked at it. And I mean, MJ should have took offense. Drexler doesn't even belong in the same conversation as Michael. Well, first off, I'd like to say it's because MJ committed to going bald. I think if Drexler commits to going bald, you know, we don't we don't see that crazy bald spot that he's got going on. And, uh, you know, sick ass hairline. that remark you just made, Sully, about, you know, Drexler not being as fire as some people remember. This question is for both of you guys. You know, we have Jordan as, say, a peak 99. Where do you have peak Drexler? I'd say at 91 or 92. I mean, he's, he doesn't have the defense, um, you know, that Jordan did, but certainly could score. Um, so, I mean, I'd say peak Drexler, 91 or 92. He's at least six or seven notches lesser than Jordan. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, for all of what Drexler did great, and we've talked about eras a lot, I don't think he'd be very good in today's game. I, I just really don't. Like you mentioned, Wayne, before, how everybody's athletic in today's game. And granted, I'm not as big on Drexler as I should be, but from what I understand, he didn't have a great jumper. He didn't have a great, obviously, three-point shot. You know, the man drove to the hoop really well and was a great finisher inside the paint and around the rim, but, you know, so I'd have his notch pretty low. Honestly, I'd probably have him at the high 80s, 89, 88, I think. Wow. Disrespect. <laughs> Again, you know, it's it's more about, like, how his skills are transitioned. I guess at the time in the league he was in, yeah, you could call him a 92-93, but like overall compared to everything, I mean, like Dwayne Wade's a better shooting guard in my opinion, you know what I mean? But Clyde Drexler may be more athletic overall, but at the same time, you know, I just think Dwayne Wade's a better player, so. Guy averaged 20 points, 6 rebounds, and 6 assists in his career. Again, he's a great, he's an all-time great. I'm, I don't want to take anything away from him, but when compared to Jordan, I don't think he's in the same conversation at all, to be honest with you. So that first game, Jordan goes out, right? He drops, was it 35 in the first half or something like that? Six three-pointers. You get the famous shrug after he bangs one in uh, Cliff Robinson's face. And the Bulls end up going on repeating four games to two. And now they're back-to-back champions. Yeah, Sully, who is he with the night before the game? And what is he doing? Yeah, he's with Magic playing cards, man, which I think is just so cool. I honestly didn't know Magic and MJ had as close of a relationship as they did. I mean, I knew they were friends, and I knew they respected each other and everything like that. But, I mean, these guys are kicking it together, playing car- like like real, actually, homeboys. I had no clue about that, which I thought was really cool. I thought one of the interesting things was after the game, everyone's getting doused with champagne. They interview Jerry Krause, and he says, this is one of the best organizations ever. You know, we're such a great organization. You know, teams are great, but organizations are great. And he really kept hammering home that whole organization over team. Yeah, Mr. Swackhammer didn't name a single fucking player on that team that just went back to back. I mean, we've seen three organizations prior to this go back to back in the entire league's history. And you've got Mr. Swackhammer smoking his cigar and getting mad, talking about how it's the organization that did this. You know, you had the front office out there scoring points. 
Yeah, I mean, this one's tough for me because on one hand, I agree with him. An organization has a lot to do with how well a team's going to do. It does start at the top and go down. However, they have nothing to do with actually winning the championship on the court. You can get your team to the championship and put them in a position to win. They have to perform and do it, and you got to give them credit. Like we said, Mr. Schwackhammer, Mr. Krause there just needed more credit than he was getting for his own personal, like, I, I wouldn't even know what to call it. Like, he just needed to have somebody say, you did this, you put this team together, good job, Jerry. And nobody would do that because, obviously, MJ's on the team, and MJ's winning all these championships, and everybody sees the player. So, I mean, on one hand, you kind of got a feel for the guy. On the other hand, it's, dude, shut your mouth. What are you saying? So, Another locker room bit where we see Jordan smoking a cigar and looking down at Jerry and saying, you can't have one of these, it'll stunt your growth. <laughs> MJ's a killer, bro. He is a killer. He dogged on so many people. We're talking about this first back-to-back run of the Bulls. And, you know, we'll we'll jump ahead even in, in my hypothetical here. You know, they're back-to-back-to-back. But was the opponents that they had, especially to you, Wayne, was this more of when they met these teams in the finals? It wasn't a foregone conclusion like it was in that second, you know, three-peat for this team. When they met the Lakers and the Trailblazers, you know, it, it was actually uh, seen as... We don't know what's going to happen. There was some intrigue. A little. I mean, the Bulls were still favored going into that 92 series with the Blazers. They were the, the number one uh, record in the NBA at the time, I think. So there was they were definitely favorites. So I don't think that there was the, anyone underdogging them. Like they were in the Lakers series. Everyone had picked the Lakers to win. But it's not like everyone's like, oh, Chicago's going to win this thing 4-0. And they didn't. And I mean, the Blazers have gone to the finals two years in the last three at that point, too. So they're a solid team. They're the best team in the West. I don't think that there was anyone underestimating them. Yeah, I agree. I've been in an argument on FBAS with a member, Patrick Lange, kind of exactly about this, how he's saying MJ didn't play anybody in his championship runs and never really beat anybody and things like that, talking about how the Seattle Supersonics were a garbage team and things like that. He may have beat some low-level teams to win. At the same time, I don't think this Blazers team was one of them, and I don't think this first three-peat was one of them. I think this was a really sound team. Now, another reporter in the locker room, Mike's, you know, sitting back on the table, smoking a cigar, and he asked them about the 92 Olympics. He said, you're playing on that dream team, right? And he goes, what's that, a couple weeks? He says, man, if Chuck plays me more than 10 minutes a game, I'm quitting. Yeah, it was definitely nice to see some more backstage stuff of the dream team. I mean, we've all talked about how that is the best pro sports team ever really assembled. Maybe some hockey fans will argue that it was the miracle team. But, you know, especially us basketball fans, we're talking about the 92 dream team. And to see the behind the scenes of how they're talking about the coach and some of the other players, it certainly leads into a player that we didn't see on that team. Before Sully gets going. If I hear anybody say that the 80 Olympic hockey team is the best team ever assembled over the 92 Dream Team basketball team, don't fucking talk sports to me. I don't even want to hear your opinion if you think the 92 Dream Team is not the best pro sports team ever assembled. Yeah, I completely agree. I may be able to get behind another team. Now, you'd have to come with a really fucking strong argument because I don't think it's right. But the 80 hockey team, that wasn't even a good hockey team. Like, let's be real. The team wasn't good at all. They just had an incredible run. The team itself wasn't a good team. It wasn't even made of the best players from the USA. So I, I'm going to have to agree with you. I mean, America, I love it. Don't get me wrong. It was arguably the greatest sports story, you know, but not near the sports team. I agree. The other thing, yeah, they asked Michael Jordan, you know, he talks about when Rod Thorne had called him and asked him about playing on the 92 team. Mike said, well, who's all playing? And Rod Thorne goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, you know what I mean? Who's all playing? 
And Rothorn goes, well, the guy that you're talking about, he's not going to play. And it's funny that Mike didn't even say his name, but later they show him in the press conferences and they want to ask him about the dream team. Like, Mike, dream team questions? He goes, no Isaiah stuff. Yeah, Wayne, you were definitely asking last episode how much we were going to see about the actual truth behind the MJ Isaiah beef and how it may have lingered into the Dream Team invitation or not. So it was definitely exciting to see more of this and see the respect slash disrespect that Jordan had for Isaiah still to this day. We talked about this, like you mentioned, a little bit last episode, and I really didn't know this whole backstory, if I'm being completely honest. I didn't know MJ kind of kept Isaiah off the team, and now that I know he did, I fucking love it. But I don't even know if he actually did, because they explained how Isaiah had an issue with Magic and Larry and Pippen and all these other people, and I think that's kind of got a lot more to do with it. Yes, of course, Michael's kind of the deciding factor, and what Michael doesn't want, Michael won't get kind of thing. But if you just combine all those greats that probably would have said, hey, look, if Isaiah's on this team, we're not playing. And then they were like, all right, let's rethink this. Lose one guy or lose, you know, four of the greatest kind of thing. Mike kept the second best point guard of all time off the dream team. I don't think so. It's debatable. I I didn't totally believe Michael's story. And I know Rod Thorne has even said and come out in interviews that Michael never asked for Isaiah to be left off the team. But just the fact that when Mike asked him about it, per Mike's story, when Mike asked him about it, he said, well, the guy that you're thinking about is not going to be on the team. I think that Rod Thorne knew right then when Jordan was saying, who's playing? It was kind of insinuated. I'm not playing if you know who is playing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think he he obviously kind of insinuated it, and Rod Thorne knew what he was talking about. Again, I have a hard time thinking it was only him. If You know, I assume he probably asked Magic, Larry, and Pippen, too. Hey, how do you feel about Isaiah being on the team? And, you know, you mentioned, Jesse, that MJ thinks Isaiah is the second best point guard of all time. I don't think he believes that for a second. I'm going to put it out there. I don't think he thinks that Isaiah is the second best point guard of all time. Who do you guys think is? Oh, me personally, I'd, I mean, there's so many I'd have to really, really study and to make an evaluation. I, I don't even know if I go Magic number one. I mean, there's so many good ones. And I love, love, love Magic as a Lakers fan. But I mean, for his prime, Steve Nash was unbelievable. And, you know, Oscar Robertson, if you look at his numbers, I know he averaged a triple-double. He was the first guy to average a triple-double for the season. Look at the seasons around that. He averaged like 33 points, 11 and a half rebounds, 9.9 assists the next year. Or like you know, 9.9 rebounds, 11 and a half assists. Like he was around a triple double five or six years in a row. Yeah. I think I'd have Steph as my number two point guard of all time. I'm a big fan of Steve Nash. I'd have Steve Nash pretty high too, but I think I'd have Steph up there. I think what he's done to the game and just absolutely changed how the game is played puts him up there. Yeah. Magic Steph and Nash make an awesome top three. I'd, I'd agree to that. So Jordan mentions that he builds camaraderie with this 92 team. You know, they're hanging out at practices. They're playing cards together. And I think that this goes, I mean, Sully, you'd mentioned how Krause did such a good job surrounding Jordan with pieces that fit a puzzle. The biggest piece of the puzzle of Jordan, but all these other pieces had to fit perfectly around him. And that's so hard to do when you have superstars and NBA all-stars all crowded onto one team. And yet I think for the fact that they were all-stars, I still think that those guys' personalities all gelled so perfectly together yeah i mean we're talking about the dream team practices and how these guys are building up their their rapport i mean we've seen these guys really go after each other on the court but in terms of practices these practices we're getting a chance to see is so exciting yeah the team itself i think they got along so well because they had all known each other these are all guys who were kind of at the back end of their careers i say back end you know other than michael kind of glary magic they were kind of all you know getting up there in age i say up there you know in basketball terms obviously 
they're also just have, have played together for so long against each other that they had built this friendship beforehand. And then to get there and just kind of have the same goal that they were going to come out and I think dominate, I think just really pushed them to be able to get together and come together so quickly. Now, Jesse, you mentioned the Monte Carlo practice, and they do have video of the Monte Carlo practice. I've seen some YouTube clips of it, and obviously they showed you some clips in the, the footage there. I don't think you have footage of all the practices, but that would have been fantastic to have. But just, yeah, that was it Barkley and Magic are up by eight on Jordan's team, and they're razzing them, and they're saying, you know, this isn't the Chicago Stadium. You're not going to get that call here, and, you know, we're up eight. What are you going to do about it? And then it was just Michael turned it on and scored every basket for the rest of the game until his team won. Yeah, I mean, I think all the time we're talking about the torch being passed from one athlete to another in different sports here. And it's just so crazy to think that the actual torch got passed in a practice that really no fan got access to see. There's bits and pieces that you can find on YouTube, but an actual full video of this practice that included some of the most competitive guys in the most competitive practice is insane. Like you mentioned, Wayne, there was a 10-point swing there. And, you know, Michael took that torch. You know, Magic said, you better become Air Jordan. You better lift these guys up. And Jordan did. He took it right home and took their respect. You know, it was a little awkward at first after they he took that respect. They were a little quiet and stung on that bus. I mean, that was really cool to see. That practice, like you had mentioned, there is video of it. And I've actually seen quite a, a long clip of it, uh, quite a bit of it. And, I mean, it's probably one of the best basketball games I've ever seen. I know it's just a practice, but, I mean, it, it, the talent on the court, you know, is undeniable. And it, it's seen, like you can see it. And you had mentioned how uncomfortable things were, Jesse. And Magic comes out with that quote and says, man, I guess we shouldn't have pissed him off, huh? And, I mean, the whole bus, they say, just erupts and things like that. And, I mean, it's so true. Like, you know... Michael was just one of those guys that you just couldn't push his buttons. You know, let him mess his own shit up. Don't give him any fire. He doesn't need it. Now, that Dream Team didn't lose any games internationally. But Wayne, correct me if I'm wrong, but they did end up losing a practice against a group of all-star collegiate players. Did they? I didn't know they lost that game. I, actually, that part I didn't know. Yeah, I was actually uh, told that they lost that game. And I also read that Jordan didn't play in that exhibition game. Chuck Daly wanted the other 92 Dream Team players to feel, hey, man, you guys aren't, you know, top shit. You better try hard. You better go after it. And the collegiate players that included Chris Weber and uh, a few other names that we see jump into the league after end up beating that 92 Dream Team in a practice. That's pretty crazy. Because I, I used to have on video, I used to have the Dream Team 2, the 1994 team, I had them scrimmaging the college all-stars and Tim Duncan was on the college all-stars and it was cool to see Shaq posting up Tim Duncan, who at the time was like 19 years old. Yeah, some of these matchups before they actually hit the league is insane. To see these guys is like raw, but still just so full of potential. I mean, we'll get to it with some of the stars we see, but you know, you bring up Shaq and Tim Duncan. I mean, I can't imagine seeing these guys as collegiate all-stars. The fact that they their bodies just, they filled out and of course Shaq became one of the most dominant figures in all of sports go to commercial with the whole trivia thing that never gives you enough time to think about it. But they said Michael Jordan is one of two players to win the MVP, the finals MVP and the gold medal in the same season. Who is the other? And again, I'm trying to think quick and I had my uh, Hulu. I was watching it. I could have paused it, but I didn't. I was just trying to think quick of who it could be. And uh, it came up as I was going to say Kareem or Elgin Baylor, but it came up as LeBron James in 2012. Yeah, my think quick answer was actually Kobe. Again, we touched on his impact on the beginning of the episode, and I just thought this was a trivia question that they had tied in right before that first commercial break. And my immediate jump to was Kobe, a little depressed, but uh, kind of nodded and said, yeah, it would be when they did announce it was LeBron James. 
I like that they go into the whole matchup against Croatia, which I know Croatia was the silver medal finalist, and they were led by Tony Kukoc, who I think at the time is 19 or 20 years old, and Dino Raja, former Celtics player, was on that team as well. They don't mention him in the series, but those two guys kind of led that Croatian team, and the first time they play him, it's just... You know, that's the big speculation. Like, how are these guys going to do? And they play him game one right away and just absolutely dominate him, which we'll get into. Yeah, that ties back to, you know, Jerry Krause having a liking for Tony Kukoc over there in the international market. And I think we've seen that as soon as Jordan or, or Pippen get any whiff of Krause having a liking for anybody or anything, that they're going to totally demolish that thing or person. I mean, I can only imagine what Mike and Scotty thought of Jerry Krause's wife. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't know much about the Croatian team, obviously, you know, I don't know who Dino Raja is, to be honest with you, even if, you know, I'm obviously not a big Celtics fan, so I wouldn't know who that player is, but yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure they beat him by like 23 that game or something, and that was supposed to be the biggest game they had, so I mean, it was quite the embarrassment. I thought it was interesting that they'd said that Tony Kukoc was a left-handed Magic Johnson. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're just throwing around all-time comparisons like it's candy on Halloween. I feel like we still do that, though. Oh, for sure. We're always playing the compare game. And I think as we, we saw from the actual athletes themselves, in both Kobe and MJ's perspective, they both hated to be compared to each other. But, I mean, us fans are never going to stop doing it. I think one of the big reasons, I know that Krause's love for Tony Kukoc is one of the reasons that they really wanted to pound this guy. But I think the biggest reason is the fact that Kukoc wasn't going to come play in America because he was like, I'm making more money playing in Europe than I would if I was a rookie in the NBA as a second round draft pick. So Kraus had to go over there and negotiate a contract with Kukoc and he negotiated that contract before he negotiated Scotty's. Yeah, so again, we're touching on Scotty's and how he felt going back to his contract negotiations with Kraus, and we gave Kraus a lot of credit, or at least you two folks did. But I mean, it just shows that there was a lot of bad blood that led into all these behind-the-scenes discussions and financial decisions that where they really we saw play out on the floor. I mean, we saw, well, Scotty and Jordan hold Tony Kukoc to only four points in that first game that they had. Kukoc got locked the fuck down, which, I mean, I don't think anybody's surprised, you know, for how good Kukoc was, he wasn't on MJ's level. He wasn't no left-handed magic. He wasn't on Scotty's level. I mean, the boy got shown the level of basketball he should stay at, shit like that. So, Well, I like that they met again in the gold medal game, and Tony actually had a really good game then. And what I liked was some of the people talking during the documentary saying like that you know, Scotty and you know Michael, they were surprised how he bounced back so much. But like, this is a kid who grew up with people walking through his neighborhood with machine guns, you know, seeing dead bodies and people getting gunned down in a, you know, a civil war state. And you think that because you played defense really hard on him, he's going to cave. Like he's seen so much worse than you. Yeah. You mentioned Kukoc and his financial reasons for staying, you know, in his home country. But there was also the fact that there was uncertainty as far as wars going on in his area. And he wanted to stay close to the home with his family. So it made a lot of sense for him to stay there. We did see him have a much better performance in that gold game. I believe it was like 16 points and six dimes. So, I mean, for a guy who's that young in a, an Olympic, you know, competition like that against, again, the greatest team we've ever seen be assembled. Really, really impressive for him. And, you know, we see this guy, you know, end up jumping to the league later on. So nothing to be ashamed of for this kid. It had to have been a real personal win for Kukoc, especially, even though his team got blown out again. Personally, you know, for him to respond and show people he can respond and play at a high level with these players, I think was obviously important to him and important for other people to see. It was good for him to bounce back. USA wins the gold, which was 
predictable. And for the medal ceremony, Michael doesn't want to display the Reebok logo that's on his warm-up uniform. And this is the thing that blew my mind. I don't know if it was Reebok or the Olympic Committee, but somebody said to him, if you don't display that logo, then we're not giving you guys your medal. And I thought, who the fuck is Reebok that they're going to step in and tell the Olympic Committee not to hand out medals unless their logo is displayed? I mean, you saw Mike's raw reaction in the vehicle. I mean, this man knows how to swear. Uh, when he drops one, he makes it worth everybody's while. And, you know, he did not give a fuck who this guy was. The fact that he was making decisions about who or who was not getting an opportunity to get their medal is just ridiculous. And, you know, the way that Mike ended up getting around that or skirting around it was amazing. Draping the flag over the logo is such a smart, cheeky thing to do. Because then what are you going to do, yell at the guy for being patriotic? Then you look like an asshole and a piece of shit. So, I mean, it was such a smart thing to do by MJ. I mean, that was brilliant. So savvy. Now, in August 91, we get the famous Like Mike, If I Could Be Like Mike song for Gatorade, which was such a brilliant, brilliant marketing campaign and whoever worked at Gatorade that came up with that I hope they got promoted and raised like there's no tomorrow there is talk they're actually going to remake that commercial and it's supposed to have Zion Williamson and a couple other people and I thought it'd be cool is Zion going to be saying I want to be like Mike and doing Jordan dunks Ooh, I would love that we know he's part of the Jordan brand now so it just all fits I love my boy Zion you know so this is going to be an awesome culmination if that does end up happening yeah I heard it was going to be him and I know Sabrina Linescu it was also going to be a part of that commercial, I believe. The walking triple-double herself. So I'm pretty sure she's going to be a part of it. And I think one more, if I'm not mistaken. But you touched on it. I mean, the whoever the marketing guy who, who just developed that commercial was better be the highest paid person in Gatorade's history right now. I hope this new uh, Be Like My commercial gets better reviews than that new bullshit Space Jam movie. <laughs> well... What I think is really funny, and Daniel like this, is now we get introduced to President Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Not Chicago resident Not Barack Chicago Obama. Resident. <laughs> the former Chicago resident. <laughs> now it doesn't even say former president. So it's just, I mean, I, I could, it's just a ridiculous. I, I know that that was completely changed after episode one. They totally went back and edited that uh, before they aired it. Oh, for sure. Definitely they went back and gave him his due respect because I think we're not the only ones that recognized kind of the quote-unquote disrespect that was given to Obama in that first episode. Or second. I don't remember which one he was in. Former guy to buy hot dog. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say it would have been better if they went the other way and it was like guy who asked to be interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we see that this is where it really gets into the whole politics. And we see that, uh, Michael Jordan, they're talking about Harvey Gantt running for Senate in North Carolina in 1990 to be the first ever black Senator from North Carolina. He's running against Jesse Helms, who's supposed to be this you know racist guy. He's got all kinds of racist policies and whatnot. And Michael Jordan won't come out and publicly support Harvey Gantt. He donates to his campaign, but he just doesn't come out publicly because he says, I don't really know a lot about politics and I don't want to come out and start supporting people. I don't even know what they're all about. I'm not a politician. I don't know about politics. So here's some money for his campaign. I hope he wins, but I'm not actually putting my name on it. Yeah, you know, we hear Jordan joke and jest that Republicans buy sneakers too. And, you know, he's not backing off that statement. You know, he didn't want to swerve from one way to the other. Maybe in one of those pickup basketball games that him and LeVar had as kids, he heard LeVar say, stay in your lane. And so Jordan just stayed in his basketball ass-kicking lane. I wish we had more of this today. I'm not going to lie. No, I, I understand. Use your platform. Speak on what you believe in. Things like that. 
I'm all for that, and I love that, and I want that. What I don't like is what Jordan mentioned. You just support a guy because he's black and from your home state, and the community wants you to support him. Well, no, what if I don't believe in his policies or things like that or, or the things he stands for? And that's what's important. Now, this is probably an isolated situation in 90. You said Jesse Helms is supposedly a racist. No, that guy was racist as fuck. He was a pure racist. I mean, that's like pure racism there. And in 90, to, to still have that, obviously, it's a little shocking and scary and things like that. But at the same time, it wholeheartedly respect MJ's opinion on the situation on, hey, I'm not a politician. I'm an athlete. I'm not going to put my mouth where it doesn't belong. And, you know, yes, he said Republicans buy sneakers. He cleared that up saying it was in jest and it was a quote that was taken out of context, which, you know, I can completely understand. But at the same point, he's right. I mean, everyone buys shoes and to completely segregate a whole populace of a community, I think is a bad idea when you're a businessman. He's not a politician. He's a businessman. So th there's no reason he should try to only support one group of people or something like that. And I've always been, maybe it's kind of a hippie part of me or something like that, but I've always believed just do whatever you want to do and everybody should just let you do whatever you want to do. Like you said, if Mike doesn't want to talk about it because it's going to affect his wallet, don't vilify the guy. Just let him work on being a businessman and say, all right, I respect your decision to be a businessman. And if LeBron James wants to get up and say, you know, I'm going to campaign against people, you know, for other politicians or whatever, you know, that's fine. Listen, if that's what you want to do, then go ahead and do that. And you know what? I shouldn't, I shouldn't be telling him, you know, oh, you shouldn't be saying that. I'm not going to lie. It does bother me because if I was famous, I'm sure I would use my platform for political reasons because I do have a lot of political thoughts, but I'm a very middle of the road guy. And I do a lot of research before I formulate an opinion. And I feel like some of these people's opinions are very non-researched. And that's what bothers me is because they're using their platform to talk about how they feel, which good for you, but how you feel is based on one one thousandth of the information that's out there. So how dare you mass spread your beliefs that aren't even researched? Especially when you're followed by millions and millions of people who will believe anything you say because you're so influential. I agree 1,000%, Wayne. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, Mike says regarding this, he says, you know, if I don't inspire you, then maybe I'm not the guy you should be following. And again, props to him. He's saying, listen, if you don't like the fact that I don't do politics, if you don't like the fact that I'm concerned about myself and my wallet over, you know, some small town in North Carolina, then just don't be a fan of me. Like, guess what? I'm a billionaire. I don't need you to be my fan. Yeah, we saw a lot of people do comparisons. Again, we were touching on comparisons from athlete to athlete, but people compared Muhammad Ali to Michael Jordan based on Muhammad Ali's willingness to go ahead and get in the nitty gritty and get involved in some political you know, disparities, some disputes. So we saw one guy actually say, we're going to see Ali remembered because of the impact he made outside of his sport. We're not going to remember Jordan. I'd love to go ahead and find that guy now. I hated that fucking statement, and I hated comparing the two in general. One was a pure religious belief. Like, it, it was against Ali's religion to go and, and fight and hurt another people. Like, that's something he can't do. MJ just doesn't want to support a guy because he doesn't know anything about him. I hated the comparison. It, it really kind of pissed me off. I'm not going to lie. Now, then they flash forward to 1998, and we get to see Randy Brown asking for a ticket. And Michael Jordan's like, does it matter where they're sitting? And he hands him a ticket, and he says something about, he's like, yeah, next to God. And Jordan says, yeah, yeah he just gave you a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's legit like a mob boss. You know, he is the ticket god, the guy that you have to ask to, to, you know, to even have your family over to watch you play a game. So it was amazing to see, you know, again, the behind the scenes looks of the way that Jordan will distribute tickets amongst the players that I couldn't have named, even if I was looking at a roster sheet from back then. 
and they mentioned, well, the Hawks play the Bulls at the Georgia Dome, which I know is a football stadium, and they actually sell 62,000 tickets. Now, to put into perspective, I think the TD Garden holds something like 16,000 people for a basketball game. So this is basically four or five times the number of people crammed in to watch a basketball game. Yeah, that's insane, the number of people they fit in there. I mean, they showed us some of the celebrities. You know, we're seeing people like Gary Sinise and Drew Barrymore and Danny DeVito and Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, the celebs are amongst the biggest fans that are just trying to get in and see their last peak of Jordan amongst every stadium or arena. And, you know, that they're not even forcing them to play inside NBA arenas now. It's like, let's pop this open to an NFL or a collegiate stadium. Let's get as many people in here that we can see. Speaking of Jerry Seinfeld, that little interaction with him in the locker room, I thought was really awkward. It's like, you know, he thought he should be there because he's this big star. And everybody in the locker room is like, for one, it's a bunch of black dudes. So they're probably like, who the fuck is this curly haired white boy in here? But for two, you know, it's like, you know, Phil Jackson's like, hey, get the fuck out my locker room. You know, it's time to go. I just thought it was kind of a really awkward situation. Yeah, I liked when he went and pointed at the blackboard. He's like, yeah, this, this play's not going to work, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> this one's not going to work. <laughs> I did laugh at that. Even though I'm not a big Seinfeld fan, I don't love the show. I mean, I know that he had his fans for sure in that 90s era. So for him to be in an NBA arena and amongst one of the other huge Hollywood celebs that are trying to get their last peak of Michael Jordan in his last season. Now, I did think at this point they're talking about how you just can't get tickets. They're impossible to get. Nobody can get them. Jordan's got to hand them out to the other players because even the other players can't get tickets for their friends and family because it's such a hard sell. And it reminded me that I actually got tickets to see Michael Jordan play, and I actually saw Michael Jordan play his very first game ever with the Washington Wizards in Washington, D.C. How did you look, Wayne? Awesome. It was awesome. They played the Pistons, by the way. And the Pistons at the time had Jerry Stackhouse. And so the leading scorer for the Washington Wizards that night, who do you think it was? Michael Jordan. Richard Hamilton. Oh, Oh. nice. My man, Rip. Richard Hamilton had 38 points that night. And Michael had 19 or something like that. But I remember Michael was uh, backing down somebody and kept slapping at his arm. And my grandmother went with me. It was me and my grandmother paid $400 a ticket. We got airline tickets and we flew down there. And it was so cool. So it was right after 9-11 because this was Michael came back in 2001. And so kind of scary flying for the first time afterwards because this was like whatever it was, September or August of 9-11 or 2001. Uh, Kwame Brown was a rookie, but me and my grandmother went. We had a great time. Everything with Michael Jordan everywhere all along the MCI arena. And uh, it was just so cool. They announced all these different Pentagon survivors along with each player. So they're like, oh, you know, this is Admiral so-and-so with Richard Hamilton. And everyone's like, yeah, whatever. And then they saved Michael for last. Whoever he was with, don't know his name or his rank or who he is because as soon as they finished the guy before Mike, that place, I couldn't hear two, two feet away from me. Yeah, that reception must have been insane. And I mean, I would have given anything to see Michael Jordan play. I mean, of course, in his peak would have been crazy. But to see him still just playing amongst one of the better scorers in the league when he's playing in Washington and the fact that you got to to see him in that game, Wayne, I'm supremely jealous. Yeah, I am too. I, I'm glad I, I knocked the LeBron James off my bucket list, thankfully. You know, I went and saw him two years ago in Orlando. And, you know, that was a, a great, great, great moment for me to actually be able to see the greatness that is LeBron live. You know, I could only imagine seeing MJ in his prime live. And I just didn't want to waste the moment I have with, with LeBron. You know, I was 10, 11, 12 when MJ was in his prime. So, you know, it really wasn't my thing at the time. So now to be able to, to do what I can, I didn't want to waste that opportunity. So the episode ends with Mike saying he doesn't want to be admired or revered, and it's like, credits. And I love that. I mean, I love that. I mean, kind of just 
feeling in general of, I don't care. I don't want to be admired. I don't want to be revered. I want to go out and do my job. I want to go out and win basketball games. And that's it. If you don't like me, you don't like me. I don't care. I love that mindset. Yeah, he doesn't want to fit in their box. You know, everybody wants to put him in a box or knock him off that pedestal that he's worked so hard to, to climb up. And, you know, he's, you know, like you said, Wayne, we see the credits just fall all of a sudden and we hear that song come on and it leaves you with, give me more, give me more. So episode six starts off. They're making a movie. They've got the little director's snap thing. It says, you know, lights, camera, action or whatever. And on it is written Michael Jordan with the Roman numeral three. And it got me thinking, there's four Michael Jordan movies, and it's Come Fly With Me, Michael Jordan's Playground, Above and Beyond, and To the Max. And I'm curious if Michael Jordan 3 is Above and Beyond. That intro didn't look familiar to me at all. I do own those movies. I didn't rewatch it in, in the short time that we had between watching and recording, but it honestly didn't look familiar to me from watching them. I don't remember seeing that scene. I mean, I've seen the movies. I don't own them. I've seen all four. I granted, it's been some time, but agreed. I don't. I didn't really see anything recognizable. And you know, maybe it's hit some unreleased footage, which would be pretty cool. Well, I liked uh, Michael Jordan Above and Beyond. That was my favorite one because that one was kind of focused on him retiring in '93, playing baseball, and then coming back that first season and kind of play, wearing the number forty-five jersey, having the ball stolen by Nick Anderson, and then working out all summer while he shot Space Jam to come back for that 70-win season. So then it kind of talks about how the minute Michael leaves his hotel room, he's just completely mopped, right? And you see him in the hotel, you see him go out on the sidewalk, and it's just floods of people wherever he goes, and you're know, getting onto the visitor bus when he's coming out of the game, just mobs of people. That's why he's got six security guards. We were asking about that last episode. We're like, why does he have so many security guards? Well, now we get to see why. Yeah, honestly, it seemed uncomfortable. I, w- I wouldn't be comfortable in that situation at all. It seems very Beatles-esque. And if we're going to talk about this day and age, since Wayne and I do both have daughters, boy band-esque. That type of following where they're willing to rip at each other and tear each other apart just to get at you and look at you and sniff your fart is ridiculous. But that's the kind of crazy atmosphere we saw when Michael Jordan was at his peak and the fans around the world wanted everything they could do to get close to him and, and see him. You could just tell it was a mob scene back then. And I mean, he was arguably the most popular person on the planet at the time, to be fair. So it's not just a standard celebrity, but man, that would be awful. You know, it's the old adage, you know, would you rather be rich or famous? And I'd rather be rich and nobody know my goddamn name because that right there is my nightmare. To be like mobbed every single day of your life is just stressful. Just trying to do normal things like that. That's a nightmare. You do start to get a feel for the whole Michael Jordan gambling thing because we get the quarter toss, right? Games for 20 bucks, and you got, uh, you know, who can get the quarter closest to the wall for 20 bucks a toss or whatever it is. And I think Michael was saying, I'll give you guys three tosses for my one. Yeah, he's willing to go to those odds, and he obviously has a long history with those United Center security guards that he's got there uh, of playing quarters, you know, whatever he called that game. Uh, I actually looked up the crazy guy that we saw give that shrug, you know, the iconic image from that episode. His name is John Michael Wozniak, and he has actually worked in security for Jordan for a very long time. He passed this past January, but he worked as a security guard for Jordan's estate up until 2016, and he has a Jumpman tattoo on his arm, just like me. Hey, man, do you got a sweet-ass mullet like he does, too? Or? No, I don't have I don't have that type of uh, length or growth, man. No kind of swag like that, man? Damn. I mean, honestly, Michael talks about how he doesn't have a gambling problem, it's a competitive problem. The quarter-toss game kind of 
you can't really defend that. I mean, quarter tossing for $20 is about as degen as it gets for a gambler. I mean, that's essentially, you know, flipping quarters or playing war. Or I mean, it's bad. So I don't know if I believe him when he says he doesn't have a gambling problem. I mean, I think that's a clear sign right there. Well, I think that $20 to him is absolutely nothing, right? And, and they really go into it when they talk about him playing cards in the plane and how the back of the plane was all guys playing high-stakes poker or whatever it was, and Jordan would come up to the front where Paxson was and whatnot and say, hey, I'll play for a dollar a hand blackjack. And like, why do you want to play for a dollar? You're back there playing for $1,000 a hand. And he goes, because I want to say that I have your money in my pocket. Absolute savage moment from him. He's willing to out you on the bus or the plane, and he's willing to take every doll you have from Scotty and Dennis, the, you know, the guys that he has close to him that are getting paid a lot more, or down to Paxson and Will Purdue. He wants to take their dollars and cents too. So it's absolutely savage of Michael. I get the dollar amounts not a big deal for him, but again, the fact that the competition needs a monetary value for him is literally the definition of a gambling act. Well, I think that that's the part of the competition is that, he, like, with the guys, the security guards, it's 20 bucks because he knows they aren't going to swing $1,000 for this quarter toss game. So he says, hey, for 20 bucks, they'll put up 20 bucks. And he just wants to be able to say, hey, you guys making like 18 bucks an hour, I'm taking 20 out of your pocket and putting it in mine because you couldn't get the quarter close enough. No, I completely understand that. I'm just saying that you have no defense for not being a gambling addict if your whole drive for the competition is the gamble of it. Like, is the taking somebody else's money? Like, like I get it. I get the monetary value isn't important, but why not just say I beat the guy? I mean, that's what competition genuinely is. And again, I'm just saying this in context to just about, I think he, I mean, I think he does clearly have a gambling problem and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I have a gambling problem. You know what I mean? Like, it's all about if you can control it. So maybe I say problem is a wrong word. Addiction. He likes to gamble and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, so we get the timeline thing again. We go back to November 1992, and the Bulls are trying to become the first team to win three in a row, or the, the third team to win three in a row. But the Celtics and the Lakers are the only other teams, I think, that have done it. And Mike is 30 years old at this point. And it's funny to think, like, he's thinking about retiring here. He's getting sick of playing. It's a burden to him. And then when they mentioned he's only 30, I was like, damn, he's only 30 years old. Yeah, he absolutely blew up on the scene, you know, with his uh, scoring in his rookie year and then the fact that he was winning awards all across the board throughout his first couple of years in the league. You know, he was a star and was having that media attention. And I think the media attention over, you know, the career path he'd had at that point is what really, you know, lent him to decide that he really might retire soon. Yeah, also, you know, Mike, as soon as he was in the league, you know, I mean, his first seasons were 82 games. Then he gets hurt. You know, we all know that. 82, 82, 81, 82, 82, 80, 78, 82, 82, 80. I mean, the guy played every single game, every minute. Of course, at 30, he looked haggard. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, the guy was just over it. You know, I mean, he was tired, plain and simple. Now, they mentioned, they say, you know, athletes are widely celebrated and people will dig for dirt the bigger you are. And so then we get to see Sam Smith, who we just mentioned, who writes the Jordan rules. And this is a time where Michael Jordan is the cleanest image. He's the Tom Brady, right? The cl clean cut guy, Teflon, nothing sticks to him. And this book kind of comes out and paints him as a tyrant and a bit of an asshole. 
Yeah, I've got my copy in my hand right now of The Jordan Rules. It's a book that I've owned for a long time. I own a couple of Jordan books, but it's nice to see the other side of it. You know, you, you know, as much as I hold this guy in high regard, you have to know that a guy that had that kind of competitive drive really was an asshole. And Sam Smith, a guy that had great exposure at that time or, or great opportunities, really had secrets to tell. I guess, you know, we're going to find out if there were some players that led him to uh, believe certain things. I've never read the book personally, so I'm definitely going to have to put that on my reads list. But it doesn't come as a surprise that Michael was an asshole or anything like that. When you have that kind of aura around you that, you know, you know you're the greatest, you're probably going to put off kind of an asshole vibe no matter who you are. So I don't really blame him. Kind of a side note as well. I think that the general difference when we talk about the greatest players of all time and everybody's talking about Kobe and LeBron and Jordan and those guys, Jordan, I think, was painted as the really nice guy. But underneath, anyone who played against him said, this guy's a prick. And Kobe was painted as a prick. And he was like, yeah, because I am. Like, he wasn't ashamed of it. He didn't have the nice guy image. And what I think is funny when we get to LeBron James, I honestly believe LeBron James is a really nice guy. And maybe that's part of his problem is he's not a dick like the other two. I actually agree. I think LeBron's a big softy, and not in like a bad way. I don't mean that in a bad Like, he's like a teddy bear, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like he's just one of those guys. And to be fair, I think if Jordan played in today's age, I think we would have found out about his discretions and his attitude and his issues a lot sooner. There's just a lot more media attention. You know, there's a lot more stuff in practices. Their film stuff gets out. You know, it's all the time now. So I think it's a little different because of the age difference. Yeah, as much as I hate LeBron, what he does for the communities and for the future's education opportunities, the guy's going to be a legend for being a a really, really nice guy. In the book, they mention one uh, story talks about how Jordan says to Phil about Jerry Krause, I'm going to get that guy fired. And Krause calls Phil to his room. He's like, were you part of this? And he's all paranoid about it. And when they were saying, like, who knew that this stuff was going on and that these things were happening? And I guess a lot of the team, not just Michael, but a lot of the team felt it was Horace Grant, mainly because he has such a close personal relationship with Sam Smith. They thought that he was kind of giving him inside information for the book. Yeah, even now in the documentary, Horace is not shy about mentioning how close that he and Sam were. So it, it doesn't lead you to believe that he wasn't the guy, that he was the emotional guy on court from what we've seen. Who knows that he would probably want to go and tell Sam some things off the court, especially after getting verbally abused by MJ. You know, again, I hadn't read the book, so to hear that that quote came out that MJ, you know, was trying to get cross fired, which I don't think is a huge surprise, but then Phil getting called into kind of the principal's office and getting scolded, I thought was kind of amusing. But I mean, I think Horace, I don't know the situation at all, but I mean, you're never going to say, yeah, I gave him the quotes and things like that. You know, if he was such good friends with him, maybe he was drunk one time and just kind of was saying stuff or not even one time, maybe it was a bunch of times and things like that. So I don't know. Now the Biggest obstacle, it looks like, was the Knicks. They said that the Knicks were kind of becoming the new bad boys. But they also said that the Knicks were kind of becoming the new Bulls, right? Where now the Bulls would win back-to-back championships. They're the bad boys. The Knicks are the team coming up trying to knock them off. So it's like, all right, right, well, the Knicks are the bad guys, or are they the good guys who are trying? It was kind of like a, you know, you choose, I guess, kind of thing. Game to game, I'm sure it depended on who you were playing. And, you know, you're always trying to play the underdog role to the media, but really trying to crush your opponent on the court. We saw some great players for those Knicks teams. You know, we're talking about Patrick Ewing and John Starks. And, you know, that those highlights that we saw, it brought back great memories of just how gritty and strong the Eastern Conference was back then. You know, you remember the Pacer teams from back then. They were real gritty. They had Reggie Miller and the wars that they had with the Knicks and Spike Lee. You know, the, the Heat teams back then and the wars that they had. So that East Conference was just crazy, crazy competitive. 
that was a really good conference. And the Knicks, you know, were a really great team. And pretty sure Michael Wilbon points out that the 92 Bulls team, he thought was actually the best team of all time, or the best NBA team of all time and the best Bulls team of all time. And that's a testament to the Knicks who take them to seven and make a series out of it. But that team right there was so talented. So that they weren't, they weren't losing that series. Well, that series goes to the Eastern Conference Finals, and they face the Knicks, and they go down two games to zero, and that's where the big controversy comes in. Again, tapping back into the whole gambling thing, is before Game 2, Michael Jordan goes out to Atlantic City with his dad. Now, reports are that he was still at the casino at 2.30, 3 in the morning, but Mike says he got back to his hotel at 12.30. No, I mean, I didn't map quest this, but what I've heard is this is a three- to four-hour trip minimum, so... MJ and his dad drive in the limo, like he says on camera, then there's no way after the game you went down there, you did yourself some gambling, and you got back to the room at 12 or 1. You know, this guy was out into the wee hours of the morning, and then he came back, and he dropped buckets and ended up going four games straight against the Knicks. Yeah, like Jesse said, the drive doesn't add up. He would have got there and gambled for like, what, like an hour? I'm sorry, that's not, like, he's not going to do that. When you get there, you're going to gamble for four or five hours. You're just going to, and then you got the drive. So I I think that he left at 2.30 and got back more around like five or six is what I think really happened. Now then they talk about Slim Buller, who I guess is a uh, golf hustler, drug dealer, and in this case now Michael Jordan gets called in to be a witness in a case against him because they find a cashier's check for $57,000, which Michael said was a loan, later confesses on the stand. It was a gambling loss. I owed him $57,000, and he was just embarrassed to admit it, but he had to admit it under oath. Yeah, guys with the name Slim are never bad news, Mike. Again, we talked about the $20 bets that he had. $57,000 is is a bigger drop in the pond for him. It it was a tough loss, but I'm sure it was tougher for him the fact that it got publicized and the fact that he needed to sit in a courtroom about it. He doesn't care the amount of money he throws around, wins or loses. He just doesn't want people to know about it or talk about it. It's his business. Exactly. I mean, I gamble a lot and you're going to take your lumps and you know what I mean? It's never fun when those get broadcasted, especially to the entire fucking world. So I understand why he initially was like, you know, it's a loan at the same time. You know, he's got to understand who he's hanging out with. And what I find ironic about all this is when he came into the league, we mentioned he walked into that hotel room, saw all what was going on and dipped off immediately. Flash forward to however many years later, I think it's what, 10 years later. And now he's playing golf with drug dealers and and gold hustlers and things like that. And I mean, he's going to play naive and say he didn't know who they were. Man, he knew exactly who they were and what the fuck they were doing. So it's like, I just kind of find the hypocrisy in that a little amusing. Again, even if he didn't know his name was Slim, you look at the guy and you can easily see the greasy hair and the sunglasses and the clothes he wears. You know, he brought his golf clubs into the courtroom with him. I don't know if you saw that on the sketch they showed. That motherfucker went from the golf course into the courtroom. Well, and I think, too, that the $57,000, well, it sounds like a lot. Obviously, we know Michael at that time is making twenty-eight or $30 million a year, and he's not really concerned with the 57000 And like you said, I don't think it was a $57,000 bet necessarily. It was probably like they're playing 1000 2000 a hole or something like that, and it just adds up after a couple of rounds of golf. And he's like, all right, I got to pay this guy you know, before he breaks my kneecaps because I played two rounds with him now, and he's taking me for fifty-seven k. He's not going to play another round with me and take my credit for it. That's exactly what happened. I mean, I didn't think it was one singular bet either. It's such an odd amount, 57,000. If it was like 50 Gs on the dot, I'd have thought, eh, maybe he lost something. But yeah, definitely he was playing 1,000, 2,000 a hole. Maybe even got up there to 5,000 at the end, you know what I mean, to get his money back or something. And, you know, he just ran his debt up exactly like you said. Yeah, we know Jordan loves golf, and we saw him playing, you know, in the bits that they showed. He, he likes to bet per hole or every hole, like you said, Wayne. So that makes a lot more sense. 
Yeah, or per shot even. You know, you're down twenty-eight thousand dollars to the guy. You're like, all right, yeah, just double or nothing on this last hole, closest to the pin. Yeah. We also see a book comes out by Richard Esquinas called Mike and Me, My Gambling Addiction, which I don't know if this is about him or if it's about him and Mike. It's called Mike and Me. But at one point, he claims that Michael Jordan owes him $1.1 million in gambling losses. Yeah, what a puss move. You know, he didn't get paid by Mike, so he ends up writing a book about it. Uh, I mean, I'd do it. <laughs> Michael Jordan owed me $1.1 million, said, go fuck yourself. I'd write a book and call his ass out on it. And I'd honestly probably blackmail him before and be like, hey, you want this book to come out or not? Give me my $1.1 million. <laughs> I would like to know if Mike ever kind of responded to that claim. I wish they would have touched on it a bit. I wish we would have gotten some response to it because we just have the one side. He claims he owes him $1.1 million, and then we never hear anything about it. Now, I didn't have time to do some research in the short amount of time we had till we recorded this. But still, at the same time, I would love to know because that, again, seems like a debt where it just ran up and ran up and ran up. I'd love to know what that one is. Well, I think that, too, Richard Esquinas, he does seem like a little bit of a pussbag when you see him in interviews and whatnot. Unlike Slim Buller, like Slim Buller seems like the kind of guy that once you're 57K behind, you cut the guy a check for 57K. Whereas this Richard Esquinas, he can probably fall behind. You're not really worried he's going to do anything about it. I mean, Michael didn't pay him, so he clearly wasn't worried about him. But the amount did draw some interest from the league because David Stern calls Michael Jordan in just to ask him about these bets. He's like, you owe this guy 1.1. You're on trial for this other gambling thing. You know, what are you gambling on? Are you gambling on the NBA? You know, he wants to get in-depth, and he says, you know, Michael wasn't gambling on the NBA. He wasn't gambling on himself or his games. So, you know, it's all good. Yeah, I think from Stern's perspective, he wants to let people know. He's like, obviously the numbers seem large, but you have to put the person in perspective. We actually hear Stern say it wasn't an epic crisis. So, you know, we didn't see a reason to, you know, fine or, or suspend him at all. When you have to use the words epic and crisis, it obviously was a big situation and trying to hush it with the media with how competitive and public his gambling was getting. Well, David Stern is a lawyer, and there's a saying that how can you tell when a lawyer is lying? His lips are moving. So I don't believe for a second that Michael Jordan wasn't betting on himself or betting on the Bulls. I I would believe wholeheartedly that he was, and I would believe that David Stern knew about it as well. But neither one of them is going to come clean about that. All right, so I touched on this a few episodes ago, and you seem to brush it off real quick, but I mentioned that after this first three-peat that Jordan and the team had, Jordan kind of got forced out of the league because of the, the gambling and such, and David Stern was like, hey, you need to take some time off, man. And maybe it was potentially because he was Pete Rose in it. Was he betting on the Bulls? Was he betting on himself? Because he, he was so competitive, and he knew he couldn't lose. I'm a huge Pete Rose fan. I mean, I just I love the guy through and through. If MJ was betting on games and betting on basketball and the Bulls, I would be so fucking mad right now. I mean, just how Pete Rose has been blackballed and treated for the last 50 years, and then MJ, you know, if he had been doing it the whole time, God, that would piss me off. Well, it's the public persona as well, and are you likable or are you not likable? MJ's very likable. I didn't grow up in the Pete Rose era, so I'm not sure how liked or unliked he was by his peers and by the media. But I think of it, look at the steroids, right, with Barry Bonds versus David Ortiz. I think they get treated a lot differently, the two of them. That's very true. I don't know if Pete Rose was loved in his time, but he's obviously hated now because he's lied about it for so long and, and denied it when there's been all this proof and things like that. But, I, I mean, you know, it's just a shame. Yeah, after Jordan ends up talking to Sir, and we end up seeing Jordan bring out the curtain of silence. Yeah, he refuses to talk to the media, and Magic Johnson says, you guys are going to drive this guy out of the game. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but he was already kind of thinking about it before all this. This may have just kind of been the last straw or the cherry on top. 
okay, so they say that the public has an appetite for these rise and fall stories. Now, we all know that that's true, right? Everyone loved tearing down Tiger Woods. And the same people that tore him down, as soon as he started winning again, were back on the Tiger bandwagon, pumping him back up. It's just, it, it makes people have job security if you're in the media. If somebody crashes and burns and then rises from the ashes, like that's a career for you. You can spend 10, 15 years writing about the fall and the rise. Absolutely. I think we see it in Hollywood with a guy like Robert Downey Jr. And we see it in athletics a lot. You see it in sports all the time where a sports story comes out, you immediately want to bash him. And then some time goes by and you want to be on that side, bringing him back up. You know, I think, you know, the fans just want to be a part of the process and that vicious cycle that we constantly see. Yeah, it is a vicious cycle. I honestly think it's one that happens far too often. I think nowadays the falls are far more greater because everything gets so blown out of proportion. However, it's again, like you said, people feed off of it. They love it. And it's just kind of human nature. Now, after this whole thing, they talk about the gambling and him being quiet, but the Bulls go out. Game three, they win 103 to 83. So they win by 20. Then they win game four, 105-95. Mike drops 54 points. You know, we get to see uh, Charles Smith, right, in game six. I think he gets blocked like five times in a row by the Bulls. The Bulls end up wrapping it up in the six games. So basically they go down 0-2, and then they win the next four games. And I know that they do ask Mike and his teammates, like, oh, well, with the whole gambling thing and all the rumors coming out and the Jordan rules, did that make you guys band together? Is that why you won four in a row? And some of the guys were like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're a team, we're a family, so we kind of come together. But I really felt like, you know, some of those guys on that team really fucking hated Mike. And they're like, no, we're glad that fucking book came out. I do think there are some guys on the team that were probably glad the book came out. You know, they had probably been saying it a lot. You know, these guys that get picked on and kind of bullied and things like that. They're probably like, yo, it's time that he gets his due reckoning. I mean, at the same time, though, you got to believe they are a family and they do want to see everyone succeed. So I doubt they're excited that, you know, Michael's, I don't want to say down, but that the media is treating him as such. And I mean, you guys have both been competitive sports and things like that. As a team, you can find anything to rally behind, to be honest with you, if you have a good enough team camaraderie. And I just think this is one of those moments where they just found anything to anything to point at to rally behind, really. It is the timing of it. I, I agree with you, Wayne. I think the team probably did relish in some of those juicy stories coming out about Jordan. But I think the timing of it, that team really did want to win a championship, no matter what they had felt was happening behind the scenes in the locker room or in practices. You know, they all wanted to band together and beat that Knicks team that was pushing them around. So they did band together. They ended up beating that team. I think in sports, no matter what, we see the juiciest stories always seem to pop up in the finals or before the Super Bowl. So that's when you get the the media trying the hardest to scrape and claw and find anything that's going to grab the most attention and drag somebody down. Now, after winning before the finals, you know, Phil Jackson gives the team some time off to relax. And I know you see Michael Jordan and, you know, Dennis Robin, all the guys get time off and Mike's going golfing with a few of his teammates. And I think they asked Dennis Robin, like, Hey, you going golfing? He's like, I'm going to Hooters. And I thought, really, you're not going to Vegas. <laughs> yeah. You figured he'd have loved to be going to Vegas right about then. <laughs> But Hooters is also pretty great then, too. You know, don't don't lie. Don't sleep on Hooters now. I'm sure he learned his lesson. He doesn't want, you know, Papa Jordan come chasing after him again. So they flash forward for that one scene, and then they flash back to 1993 again. They talk about how Charles is the MVP of the league and not Jordan, and Jordan's a little bit pissed off about that, and he kind of wants to take it out on the Suns. Again, like you said, Jesse, just a guy who can find any chip whatsoever off the ground and put it on his shoulder, even if it's not real. 
Yeah, I mean, you you would know best, Wayne. I mean, go back to, to that season in your mind the best you can. Did Chuck actually win that MVP? Did he deserve that MVP? I mean, I didn't. We have the access to, to Google or Bing, whatever search engine we want to use at this time. Whichever one wants to choose to sponsor us, we can go ahead and find out who actually statistically had the better season. I mean, I do remember that Phoenix had home court. We see, you know, the Bulls did end up having home court a lot through these clips that we're seeing. But did Chuck have the better season? No. I mean, it's it's the term voter fatigue, right? I mean, you can vote for Michael Jordan every single year. I guarantee you that that year, Michael Jordan led the league in scoring. He averaged 30 points a game. He was first-team All-NBA, first-team All-NBA defense. So there's no way that he wouldn't be the MVP of the league every year that he played. But I think it was just, you know, voters get tired of voting for the same guy year after year. It's the same thing that happened uh, that second three-peat with Carl Malone. I think that last season against the Jazz, Carl uh, Malone was the MVP. Yeah, I mean, just looking at it quickly, MJ did average 32.6. He led the league in steals that year, too, at almost three steals a fucking game. Jesus Christ. Seven rebounds, five and a half assists. And the all-defensive team, like you said, Chuck had 25.6, 12 rebounds, five assists, and one and a half steals a game. So not a terrible season, but I completely agree with you, Wayne. I think it's just voter fatigue. Yes, Chuck had a great year, but 25 and 12 is nothing special. You know what I mean? Like, that's nobody's gawking over that. Yes, they did have the best. I mean, I don't know about the best record in the league. They obviously had home court advantage, so it may have been the best record in the league. But, I mean, 32 and a half, you know, I mean, that's insane. That was actually his, I think, fourth highest scoring season. And then again, three steals a game? Like, that's bananas. So, I mean, he did get kind of robbed there. But, again, it's it's just voter fatigue. You get tired of voting for the same guy over and over. I think it's why Mike Trout hasn't won all his MVPs, to be honest with that does make the most sense. I know Sully loves to get Mike Trout in every episode just to get Wayne rattled up. Boys, I did love seeing Chuck, you know, dunking and, and looking athletic out there. I think we see a lot of him on the uh, TV nowadays, and we see him sitting there next to big old Shaq. But that boy could really move around and score. Yeah, Charles Barkley was a phenomenal player. I think that, yeah, you get used to seeing him on TNT, and he's a big, fat lard. But, you know, in his heyday when he was playing, particularly that Phoenix season or even the 76ers before that, like Charles Barkley was a monster. You know, the round mound of rebound, they called him. You know, his arms were cut up and he pulled down boards probably close to like what Robin did at the same rate. I think people really do truly forget just how good Charles Barkley was. I, I mean, they like you said, they see the fat round mound, mound piece of nonsense spitting out random shit out of his mouth, and they think, you know, he's just that slow guy, and the dude was a baller. I mean, like you mentioned, he was that dude in Philadelphia. I mean, he led the league in two-point field goal percentage for five straight years for field goal percentage. So, I mean, the guy was bananas. I think he's more of a small forward than a power forward, to be fair. But, you know, especially in today's game. But, I mean, the guy was moving. He could he could play ball. So before game one of the finals, Michael Jordan decides to break his silence with the media and he talks to his best buddy, Ahmad Rashad, and he opens up about gambling and he opens up about everything that's going on. And Ahmad was saying, you know, it was just weird that he wore sunglasses for the whole interview, which was not a good look. Like it, You know, it made him look that much shadier to, I guess, kind of a pun, but that's what he looked like. Yeah, not good to get fashion advice from Slim Bowler when you're giving a public interview about how you're not a competitive gambler. Yeah, like for real, who was his PR team that said, yeah, 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 this is the image we want to go with? He just looked like a, I mean, I hate to use this word, I really do hate it, but like he looked like a gangster, like for lack of a better term, you know, he really did. He, like, I don't know, I hated it. Yeah, he was one one hoodie away from being guilty. <laughs> They talk about how Jerry Krause, another thing where they talked about how, you know, he had attacked Kukoc because Krause loved Kukoc. Well, Krause thought that Dan Marley was such a great defender. And by all accounts, Dan Marley was a pretty good defender. He was also in a slam dunk contest. The guy's like 6'2 or 6'3. He could sky. 
But Michael Jordan says, all right, I'm going to show you that Dan Marley is not the defender you think he is. And I'm just going to destroy him because you like him so much. Again, anybody that Jerry Krause made eye contact with, Michael Jordan just wanted to crush their dreams. We all have seen Jerry Krause. He is not a good-looking man, so I'm assuming his wife is not either, with all due respect, Mrs. Krause. But you got to think MJ definitely fucked her just to spite Jerry Krause at that point. Like, I mean, like, like the guy, If you, like you said, if he even had an inkling that he likes somebody, well, I'm going to go after him and attack him and just essentially ruin his career at that point. He seemed to bully the team into it, too. You know, we saw it when him and Scotty were pretty much demanding to take coach. And, you know, here in the finals, you know, he's going to probably rally the team around and say, hey, I've got this guy. I'm going to call it the shots. You know, of course, he's the leader of that team. But he rallies the team around who he saw Jerry Krause eyeing at a time. Well, what I really liked was the game two after the, the triple overtime game in game two. And Charles Barkley, in his interview in the show, says, it's the first time in my NBA career that I felt like I wasn't the best player on the floor. And I know that there's so many of those NBA guys, obviously you, you have to believe you're the best player in the world. You have to believe that to be as good as you are. And to have somebody like Charles Barkley, who is a top 25 probably player of all time, come out and say, that was the first time I felt it. Like I looked at Jordan, I was like, he's better than me. Yeah, they both had insane games in that game. Quickly uh, looking up the stats right now, but they both had over 40 points in that game. I believe Jordan had a a near triple-double. So the intense honesty that we're getting from these people where they're saying, you know, Chuck is looking at you with the phenomenal play that we just spoke about. He's saying, the first time in my life, I saw a player better than me. And we know he hated it. He still he still probably resents it now, especially knowing he doesn't have a ring on his finger. And Jordan took six from him. I'm sure a lot of players from that area hate it and, and feel the same way. But, you know, for Chuck to say that and be as brutally honest as he's been, it's been awesome. You mentioned my point, Jesse. There is John Stockton, who's arguably a top 25 player. Carl Malone, arguably a top 25 player. Patrick Ewing, arguably top 25 player. Charles Barkley, arguably a top 25 player. All who probably felt like Michael Jordan just shit all over their life and kept them and and essentially gave them that feeling of I'm just not good enough I'm one of the greatest players to ever play the game and I'm just simply not good enough to beat this guy and that has to be such a just a soul crushing kind of feeling because like you said these guys have to be the most confident human beings on the planet to do what they do and to feel that way god I can't even imagine I think about ring chasing and Charles, and I think about how he's with Phoenix. He gets beat by MJ. Then right after that, Jordan goes to play baseball, right? So Jordan's gone for two years. In those two years, the Houston Rockets win back-to-back NBA championships. So Charles says, all right, I'll join the Rockets to finally get one. And Michael comes back, and he's like, God damn it. Damn, I actually didn't know that's how it played out. I mean, like, I, I knew that the Houston had won and then he jumped in, but I like I never put the two like, yeah, I'm going to go win a championship, and then Michael comes back and fucks his whole world up. I never considered the timeline either, but, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. It certainly makes sense, you know, when you look back and you say, wow, that entire decade, he screwed so many, like, legends of the game out of rings. Just to touch back, because I did have a second where you guys were chatting, Jordan that game, 42-12-9 in that game. Chuck had 42, 13, and 4. So just insane numbers for these guys. That's why they are legends. So Mike drops 55 in game 4, and they go to kind of like that commercial thing where they have the other players, and they had Sue Bird, who said she remembers her favorite memory was John Starks dunking on Michael Jordan. And what's funny about her saying that is I've known Knicks fans in my life that that is literally like their favorite moment of their lives. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they want to name their kids Stark or John because of that. I mean, that's a legendary dunk for him to have. Yeah, I mean, I'm no Knicks fan. I'm no Bulls fan. I know for a fact that John Starr smashed all over 
Michael Jordan, because every Knicks fan I know tells me every time I see them. Well, they didn't win any championships. That's all they got. Yeah, that's literally all they have. So then they talk about the trivia, our favorite part, where it rushes through. It says, who are the other guys that average 40 <laughs> points per game besides Jordan? And quickly in my head, I'm thinking, Wilt, but I'm like, you know, probably not. And then it comes up with Elgin Baylor and Rick Barry. And uh, Elgin Baylor, I'm not surprised, because he averaged almost 40 points a game during the regular season. But Rick Barry was the one that surprised me. Wayne, why did you just brush over that? Why why didn't Will average 40 points per game inside the finals? That, <laughs> that's, that's, your boy. That's, that's your number one boy. Yeah, you look at when he went to the finals. You know, what I mean, he went to the finals when he was, you know, 36 or 34, whatever, towards the end of his career with the Lakers. And I think he was a finals MVP when he went, but he was still older. He wasn't the same, you know, 50 point per game, Wilt Chamberlain. And then I think the, fir- the first time he won a championship, uh, I'm not sure what he averaged. I bet you it was close to 40, but I'm not sure exactly what it was. I agree, though. Rick Barry's a pretty big shock. I, I, I didn't expect... I mean, again, he's great. I mean, we're mentioning all-time greats here, but it was still kind of a shock that he was the other one named. You know, Elgin Baylor, I thought was a good one. I honestly thought it... I thought it was going to be a newer guy, and I thought it may have been like Steph, or I, but I, I didn't think he got that high. I mean, 40 points is insane, but I thought it was a newer guy, but I was way off. So we get into Game 5. The Bulls lose to the... Sons and nobody wants to go back to Phoenix. Nobody wants to get on a plane. And Michael Jordan says, Coach, I want to talk to the team. And he says, Listen, guys, I'm only bringing one fucking suit. That's it. So we better win. That was an iconic moment from Jordan to say that. But I think even before that, seeing Charles's uh, demeanor at, at the press conference after Phoenix had won that game, saying, Take that shit off the windows. You know, you don't need that no more. You know, just seeing how he was with the press at that point and how he reacted towards the fans having that stuff up on the windows, the boarded up windows, because they were getting ready to celebrate a championship. And Chuck didn't want to give it to him. So I liked Mike's line, but Chuck's line to me was superior in this episode. I agree. I like I like rubbing it in when somebody loses. <laughs> um so Chuck says there's no shame in losing to Michael Jordan. Now, this is after John Paxson hits a three with only seconds remaining. The Bulls are down two. Paxson knocks down the three. What surprised me was Paxson was the only person on the Bulls to score a basket not named Michael Jordan in the fourth quarter. We talk about, you know, this team pre-Rodman. You know, this is why we don't see Pippen scoring points. You know, that's where Pippen had to dedicate his entire effort onto defense, especially in the NBA Finals. And so, you know, we saw Dan Marley on John Paxson. And, you know, once that shot got in the air, it looked like Marley was going to crumble, just like Craig Elo when Jordan hit that shot on him. So, I mean, it's just these, these insights and these flashbacks are just, they give me goosebumps every time. I love it. I want to eat it up. Triangle offense at its finest right there to get John Paxton open. I mean, I know that wasn't the drawn-up play, but, I mean, we just see it, and, and, you know, we see it. He's wide open, and man sticks it. He does his job. You got to feel good for the guy. I mean, I think LeBron gets a lot of flack for other people. You know, we talk about, the, obviously, the most famous Ray Allen shot where Ray Allen essentially wins him a championship, but, I mean, like, we can't forget about these where Paxton wins MJ a game, things like that. So, you know, again, every player has his help, and every player's going to have his help, and, you know, you got to believe in your teammates to step up when it's their time to step up well and this was foreshadowed in episode one of the docuseries when they were making jordan sit out with that broken foot they're like you gotta sit out and so with whatever it was 18 seconds 30 seconds left in the game against milwaukee they're like nope take him out he's reached his limit so he has to sit out for that 30 seconds it was john paxton that hit the game winner some of the playoffs yeah that ugly runner so that kind of wraps up Michael's three-peat. They're the first team to do it in, since the Lakers, the Celtics. And then, you know, he's just mentally exhausted. He's like, I don't even, 
you know, it's not even as much fun winning the championship anymore. That elation's not there. The emotion, he's just like, ugh, what a relief to be done with this. And then they kind of flash forward to 1998, and the Bulls are getting ready to go play the uh, New Jersey Nets. They're 62-20. and 20, And if we remember, they started off 8-7. and seven, So that means they went 54-13, and 13, whatever it was, for the, <laughs> the remainder of the season. They ended up playing the Nets. So we get to see Michael leaving the mansion uh, with the number 23 on the gates. And I remember he was selling that house for like $27 million or something like that. And I viewed it on Zillow or whatever it was when he was selling it. And what a goddamn palace that place is. Probably worth every penny of that $27 million. Oh, I mean, I'd give my life savings just to be able to, you know, take a tour of that place. But to touch on that Nets team, is that when J-Kid and, you know, is Kenyon Martin on that team? Who, who's on that Nets squad? It wouldn't be Kenyon Martin because Kenyon Before Martin was Kenyon number one. Martin. He was a number one overall pick in 2000. So it wouldn't be him. But Jason Kidd may have been. Um, Kerry Kittles, maybe, might have been on that team. Keith Van Horn, maybe. Keith Van Horn, yeah. Number two overall pick. Yeah, Sam Cassell, Keith Van Horn. Yep. Xavier McDaniel, Kendall Gill was on that team. Kerry Kittles, Jason Williams, the big center. I mean, not a not a great team. Well, that's they were probably the eight seed. Yeah, they finished forty three and thirty nine. Jesus. Jordan's talking to Ahmad Rashad in the car, and he says, "You know, I want to retire two years too soon. Like, I don't want to be in the league." And everyone's like, "Oh, he should have retired last year." I don't even want to be in the league and have people say, "Oh man, he still has one good year." He goes, "I want to retire and have people be like, man." He still had a couple good years left in him. Why did he retire? I want to retire on top. And it really reminded me of something that Kobe said when they were asking Kobe like how long he was going to play for. And he goes, you think I'm going to stick around, average 19 points a game, and just shakes his head in disgust? Yeah, I don't think anybody had a better finale or better final game than Kobe did. You know, again, RIP, we saw, you know, the episode lead in with a tribute to Kobe and Wayne's going to take us out with a tribute to Kobe and how he remembered him there. But, you know, that does make sense for Jordan to want to leave before, you know, he ends up looking horrible on court in front of the fans that he really came out there to perform to see. He wants to leave while he's on top. The irony being he came back and then, Ended up looking terrible for the Wizards <laughs> and not leaving on top. He still averaged 20 points per uh, game both those seasons. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and for a guy that was, what, 38, 39, and I think he even got to 40. 40. He averaged he over 40. 20 yep, points a game. The, uh, yeah. Oldest player to drop 50 in a game. He was 40 years old. Yeah, and, he, and but I mean, don't get me wrong, but we could all see he was a shell of himself. Like, the guy was just hucking shit up. And like you reminisced to Kobe, you know, 19 a game is the same thing as 20 a game, if you ask me. And Kobe Bryant didn't want to average 19. You know, I think it's these guys, they they just want the memory of them to be so great. They don't want you to have a kind of tainted view of them. And, you know, I kind of do. Now, again, it's not going to change the way I feel about Michael. But, you know, obviously seeing him kind of, you know, an old man in those Wizards jerseys just wasn't the same thing, you know. So I think obviously the greats want to kind of avoid that situation. So that is the episode We got episodes five and episode six that we recapped. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I did see RTF Sports Network now. If you are listening, then you are able to comment underneath while we're playing and give us a shout out. I mean, the episode's playing. You like something we say. You don't like something you say. We'll take a look at the comment. Maybe we'll bring you up in the next episode. If you disagree with me, then you're wrong. But maybe you disagree with these other two guys. We're currently up to 385 votes, guys, so please continue to vote. You've got a couple more weeks to push us to a superior lead. You know, we are at 78% of the votes right now. There's no reason we can't get closer to 90% of the votes, folks. And I'll tease it as well that once we do win this show of the month, which we will win, we have a big surprise coming once we win for everybody. Big market tease. But while there is still time to vote, make sure you do it. You go to rtfsportsnetwork.com. You go to the top banner. You vote for the show. You vote for Facebook All Sports. That's us, baby.
Yeah, get it on in there. We appreciate everybody. You know, like with those comments, you know, as, as much as you might want to say how great we are and how, how amazing we are, because we do know we're amazing. Give us some criticism. Give it. Give us something you want us to work on if you want to see us something work on. Give us something you want us to talk about if you want to hear something specific. We're very genuine, very caring dudes. We'll, we'll help you out, man. We'll, we'll give you what you want to hear. So uh, get up on there. Vote. RTFSportsNetwork.com. FBAS. Facebook All Sports. Vote for us, baby. Well, Jesse sneaked it for me last week. So, uh, hey, Kenny, how much time we have left? 